Well, I'm curious if you have ever been called a name. Um, if you're like, I have kids, so they call me names all the time. Uh, if you've been called a name, but it's like stuck with you and ingrained in your life forever. I remember uh, back in fifth grade, I had this like, like catalytic moment of my life in which I've never been more ashamed, and I still to this day haven't been able to shake it was going into just our fifth grade, and uh, our school had, they called it ride to school day, and which meant like ride your bike, ride your skateboard type of deal. And I had just won this uh, new skateboard through this thing uh, at one of the local surf shops because I, I grew up in San Diego. And uh, the, the thing was like, man, you got to go get everything you needed for your own brand new skateboard. So new deck, new uh, grip tape, new trucks, bearings, wheels, you got to pick it all. And so here it is, so, so it's ride to school day, and I've got my new skateboard and so I ride a couple blocks to school and all of the kids in fifth grade, all the other boys were kind of like, man, this is the sickest skateboard ever. And I was like, I know, right? And one of the kids comes up to me and goes, man, you must be really good with this type of skateboard. And I was like, oh dude, I'm so good. Like one of the best skaters, probably going to go professional at some point, whatever. I had just started. So I'm just flat out lying to this kid. And he goes, okay, so like you know how to do a kickflip then. And I was like, dude, I can do kickflips in my sleep. And so then we go to class, and then he sends me a note. The kid sends me a note. He goes, second recess, bring your skateboard. Show me you know how to kickflip because I don't think you can. And I was like, oh, it's going down, right? Like we're doing this type of situation. And I lean over to my buddy who was actually a good skater, and I said, so how do you do a kickflip? And he goes, okay, so you, like, you do an ollie, and then as you ollie, you kind of you know, kick your, your front foot, but you got to kick it out, not too far down, not too far up or whatever. I'm like, okay, okay. And he's like, so, so it's kind of like a timing technique. I'm like, I'm following. I'm like, okay, yeah. And then, so then I go, so how do you do an ollie? And he's just like, oh, boy, this ain't going to happen. And so second recess comes, and I've come up with all of these excuses. I call my mom to come pick me up pretending to be sick. I'm like, i got to get out of this thing. And, and I walk out, and I remember him to his name. His name is Josh Brunson. Hate this kid. Don't know what you're up to, Josh. As a pastor, I'm, I'm supposed to say that I love you, but in reality, you still got a piece of me. And he goes, Josh just goes, let's see it. And I just do, like, it was like a lame duck type of situation, like a baby deer trying to walk for the first time. And I just completely botched the thing. And he just starts yelling to the rest of the class, all the kids on the playground, Eric's a poser! And I cried. Just tears because I was like, it's true, but that's mean. And that hurts. You know, so I don't know if you've ever been called a poser before in your life. Maybe you got that playground comeback of like, well, you can talk the talk, but can you walk the walk? Yo, or I don't know how, you know, what that looks like for you. That idea of it's one thing to, to look the part. It's one thing to know what to say. It's another thing to actually be able to do it. And as we continued studying in 1 Corinthians this morning, I want you to keep that idea in your mind. That there is a difference. Sometimes there's an unfortunate gap between what we know we ought to do, what we believe, what we think, what we feel, and what we actually put into practice. We've been studying uh, the uh, First Corinthians for a couple weeks. We're in chapter three today. Some of you are like, but it's week four. Yep, we take our time doing some of this stuff. And we started week one saying there's uh, the Apostle Paul is writing to a group of 
Christians. So he's not addressing Corinth, the city of Corinth at large. He's addressing a group of Christians, uh, a church, and he's going to, for 15 chapters, and he's talking about this idea in which he is kind of saying that, that their worldview, the way in which they view life, operate, their true north is off. And what we said week one is that in your worldview, you have what you believe, you have your context, and then you have your actions. That was a really bad way of writing. And and so what we're going to see today is the Apostle Paul, he's going to write, again, he's writing to this group of people claiming to be followers of Jesus. He had planted this church, he's writing back a couple years later, and he's saying, a lot of you, you have good beliefs, but your actions are going with the way of current. They are not matching up. This part over here is not overlapping the way that followers of Jesus and the church ought to be. And so Paul begins to write with this idea that, that you, you say a lot of the right things. You, you play the part, but you are being pulled away. He's continuing this idea by, by, by worldly wisdom. He's been drawn this dichotomy, and Samuel did such a phenomenal job of it last week, saying, saying that the cross of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ crucified, is the foundation that is God's wisdom that looks foolish to the world, yet the rest of the world is going to say, no, 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 you need to define your own terms. You need to find hope and meaning and life and beauty and gender and identity based on anything other than God. You determine it for you, right? The, the whole motto for, for the town, the city of Corinth was, you do you. And Paul is saying, not if you're a follower of Christ. If you, if you claim to be a Christian, if you claim to be someone who, who calls some church, any church home, your foundation of not just what you believe, but how you act needs to be in Christ. But if you go with the way of the world, the wisdom of the age, your foundation will be most likely on something different. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we're starting in verse 1 this morning. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn there with me. Every single week, we open the scripture, we give you the text because we want you to dive in along with us. The Bible's broken into two parts, Old Testament, New Testament. We are in the New Testament, that means we are after the time of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the four guys, the four dudes, they give us the biography of the life of Jesus, the Apostle Paul writing, then kind of saying, okay, now that Jesus has died, rose again, and then ascended back to heaven, this is how how we now live. Seventh book of the New Testament. If you find the T's, Timothy and Titus, go to your left. You've gone too far. First Corinthians chapter three, starting in verse one. You can follow along with me. He says this, Apostle Paul writing. He says, well, brother and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the spirit, but as people who are still worldly. If you have a Bible in which you can write in, you're allowed to write in your Bible, Highlight, circle, underline that word worldly. You are merely infants, circle infants in Christ. I gave you milk and then circle, annotate milk and and connect those three with a line. Create like a little triangle there, if you will. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you are all not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready, for you are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans. For one says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Apollos was another kind of pastor, celebrity type pastor guy back in that time. Are you not mere human beings? What after all is Apollos and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord had assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything 
but only God who makes things grow. Imagine being on the other end of this letter, okay? Here's your pastor writing to you, guy, saying like, okay, I care for you guys. I want to just address some things. And he just flat out calls you a child. He's just like, you're, you're being a bunch of babies, okay? Like you're just kind of walking around, going about your faith, making, and you're just kind of, you're being a bunch of, of infants in your faith. And he uses the word infants in, intentionally because think about what infants do. This isn't a trick question. They do nothing, Right, like if you have kids and they've grown up, you know that in that toddler infant stage, they are absolutely useless. Right now, I'm not saying we don't love them or they're not valuable or they don't help me, but they literally do nothing except steal your money, take your sleep, just want more, 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 more. And Paul is writing them to saying, "You guys are being like little, like little infants. All you're doing is just taking." All you want is just what Jesus could do for you. You know, when I, uh, before I had kids, I loved flying. Like flying was dope because you just get on a plane, you put on you know, like your headphones and you're like, sweet, in like three hours, I'm going to be in a whole different part of the country. Um, and it's just, it's such a peaceful time. But then when you don't have kids and you sit down and you see that family of like seven come on the plane, what do you think? Please, Jesus, don't sit in front or behind me. You do it, don't lie. And then when you don't have kids, what do you think? When the kid starts freaking out or crying or yelling, you just think to yourself, when I'm a parent, I would never let my kids do such a thing. Come on, it's true. Like, like flying, traveling is the worst. Now that I have two young kids, my perspective has changed just a little bit. But I hate it. Because as soon as I walk up to the gate and my little ducklings are in tow, I can feel it from people being like, don't sit next to me. Like they hate, everybody hates you when you get on the plane and you have kids with you. This one time I was flying again before I had kids, crazy story. Um, this new family sat across the aisle with like a six-month-old child, which is like, I don't even know if that's legal. I'm going to call DCFS. I don't know how, whatever. And, and so they're going the whole time, shh, 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 shh. And this baby's just knocked out. I was like, oh, this is great. We're about like an hour away from our destination, and the baby starts to stir. And I'm like, oh, boy, it's going to happen. <laughs> We're all going to lose our, our, our minds here in this moment. And, and, and the wife looks to the husband. She's like, quick, 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 get out, get out the, the, the bottle. And so he pulls it out, and he starts to, un, un, uh, starts to kind of twist the top. She says, no, no, remember, you got to shake it first before you put the stuff in. I was like, that's backwards, but whatever. You do you. And he starts to shake it. It's a stainless steel tin. Nobody taught this guy in physics class. There's this thing called pressurization. So he's shaking it. And I can like feel it from across the aisle that it's just like swelling up. And he undoes the top and it's just like, like a champagne topper. And water's just spraying everywhere. And I'm just like, man, that's so embarrassing for you. All because they have this infant with them. They can't do anything. Need somebody else to just take care of them over and over and over. If you have kids, if you want to have kids, even if you don't have kids, you know that over time, infants are supposed to grow. They're supposed to mature. They're supposed to get bigger, be able to take care of themselves. And Paul's writing years later to a group of Christians saying, you haven't grown. 
And he calls them uh, uh, infants. And he says, because you are still worldly. You are still desiring milk. And so there's this correlation here. He says, all you want in life is milk. Because you're still worldly. And he kind of describes it. Look at all the jealousy that you have in your life. The quarreling, talking about who you follow. It's an entitlement thing. Oh, I follow Paul. Well, I follow Apollos. He's a little bit better. Da, 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 da. And he's just like, that's, that's so worldly. That's such like a, a milk diet type of thing. Like imagine if you walked in this morning and you just saw like a bunch of grown men in strollers and a bunch of grown women like sucking on bottles. You'd be like, that's weird. And Paul's saying, spiritually, you have yet to grow up. Notice here, he's not having an issue with what they think. He doesn't have an issue of what they believe. He's pulling directly against their actions. He's saying, you're just like the world. You're no different. You get jealous over stupid things. You haven't grown up. Sure, your theology is on point, but there is a gap here. And Paul is writing to them pastorally. He's saying, I need you to grow up. I need you to take faith, a hold for yourself. He's writing again to Christians. So if you're here today and you don't believe in Jesus, you're just exploring faith, you're exploring the idea of church and God, number one, we are so glad you're here, but this message is not for you. This message, though, is for anybody who calls First Christian Church home. Anybody who, who has said, I believe and I, and I follow Jesus with my life, this message is for all of us, myself included, that Paul is saying, you need to ditch the diet of milk because there is more to have. It's not about, though, just what you think or believe or the doctrine you hold to, but what are you doing? There's a growing problem, he says, that he sees. There's a growing problem, and I call it the growth gap. He's saying that there, there is a gap here between what you believe and how you behave. He's saying, you know, one's over here, the other's over there. What he's, what he's trying to, to distinguish between them is he says there is a, a gap between these two in the life of those in Corinth. He's saying, some of you, you believe right. You've got good doctrine. You follow Jesus with your word, maybe with your head or what you do, but, but your behavior is still very worldly. There's, there's a gap here. And if you're anything like me, you look at this and you're like, yeah, that's me. As Paul will eventually say, why is it that I do the things I know I shouldn't and I don't do the things that I know I should? There's a gap between what you believe and how you behave. It's, it's like the true definition of immaturity, is it not? Like I looked it up on Google and Google doesn't lie. This is what they said immaturity is. is that behavior that is not appropriate for anyone of that age. It's not because you don't know what is right. It's not because your beliefs are necessarily off, but it is your actions. You're an infant because you've built your life on a foundation other than Jesus Christ. You want to be clear, he's also not saying that, that growth doesn't take time. He's not writing to some people who, who last week gave their life to Jesus and said, why haven't you lived? He's saying, no, for three years, you guys have had the truth. For three years, you've been worshiping the crucified Savior for three years. And I find out you're still doing the same old things. I've told you. Apollos has told you. Cephas, we have all told you. And, he, and he's kind of coming at them pastorally because he loves them. 
as a shepherd would, would goad and prod their sheep. He's kind of saying, like, like you can't be a non-contributing zero in the church. He said, you can't be somebody three years down the road who just absorbs. You're called to mature. You're called to what we call sanctification. You are called to grow in your faith. You are called to use your spiritual gift. You have been called to a different way of life. And he's like writing, but he's like, some of you, you still treat your spouse the same as you did before you met Jesus. Some of you, you're still just openly flippant with your, with your sex life. Others of you, you haven't grown in your spiritual disciplines. Others of you over there, you have no surrender with your money. Others of you, your priorities all over whack. He's just kind of saying, like, 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 you just want milk, I, I, I see. And so, so you need to get rid of that. Jesus tells this parable in Matthew chapter 21. It's the parable of the two sons, not the same as the parable of the prodigal son, but he tells this story as a short little parable, and he says, which is better? If you had two sons, which one would you want, so to speak? Do you want the son who, who, who says he's not going to do the thing, but ends up doing it? Or do you want the son who tells you everything that he knows he should, yet never follows through? And we say, well, that's a no-brainer. I don't care what you say, because actions speak louder than words. And the apostle Paul is saying the exact same thing. It's not enough just to believe that that grace through the crucified Savior wants to transform everything about you. you got to put it into practice. When I was 15, um, I was doing my driver ed training, you know, like the behind-the-wheel, student-driver type of car vehicle. And, um, and I had like this three-hour-long session. You did like two, like one-hour one, then like a long three-hour one. And I get in the car, and the guy turns to me, and he goes, nice to meet you. I don't remember his name. And he goes, the key to becoming a good driver is constant vigilance. You just always be awake and alert. I'm like, duh, but Okay. So we're driving along, and he's kind of giving me pointers here and there. And about 45 minutes into the thing, he just falls asleep. Like he's in the passenger side, and, and he's got that brake on that side, and he would occasionally like jolt, and so then like the car would just kind of like be going all of a sudden. So people behind me being like, oh, here's this 15-year-old high trying to learn how to drive. What's going on here? And he's just kind of like literally just passed out of sleep. And so we're like 10 minutes away from when I'm supposed to be done. And so I'm like... He's, I don't know, I'm just here doing the thing, we're cruising around, and so then I'm like, hey, I'm just going to go back to my house, and, and I don't know, maybe he just does this all the time, I just get out, leave it running so he doesn't suffocate, I don't know. And so then I, I, he kind of like starts to stir and wake up, and, and so he's kind of, he does one of those, he's like, okay, yeah, oh yeah, that was great. And then, uh, so I get into the left turn lane to turn left, like literally to go, go to my street, and he says to me, he goes, Eric, do you work for the FBI? And I said, no. He says, oh, because you got into the left turn lane without using your blinker. And I was like, you've been asleep. After you preached to me, you got to be awake and stay village. Hey, where do you get up? Who do you think you are? Like, some of us, we get caught in that same kind of spiritual dynamic. We say the right things. We know what we ought to do. We can give you the Bible verses and talk about the God. But when it comes to putting it into practice, Paul says, you have completely missed. There is that gap. You need to fill it in. Like, let, me just, let me just speak to, to, to all of us in the room. Like The state of First Christian Church right now is, is amazing. Like, like, like post-COVID, we are almost back to where we were pre-COVID, which is unthinkable. 
Like, I got friends who are pastors. Their churches are dwindling. They haven't been able to, like, we, we baptize over 30 people on Easter. Like, this is absolutely insane. Nobody, does. there's guys who are in ministry for, like, their entire lives and never see 30 people back. It's unbelievable. God is doing a great work in the life of our church. And people are coming and families are coming and people are finding Jesus here. But my thing is just this, is like, yet the curve We've got to catch up on the backside, the back end. Like, like we need our people. We need you to not just come and absorb. We need you to go from milk to puree to meat. Like, like we need you to serve. We need you to give. We need you to lead groups. We need you to invite others. We need you to show grace and hospitality. Like two years ago, think about this. Two years ago, we were all out here by ourselves here in Champaign, were we not? Like there was nothing out here. And we're just like hanging out. Be like, what church do you work at? Oh, the one on the far end where nobody goes ever. The one with the playground, the big green roof. Yeah, that's us. And now all you got to say is, oh, we're just across the street from the fields. Oh, I know exactly where that's at. Soon enough, literally across the street, like 200 yards, this way, is going to be like a thousand people in their 50s and up living together. And we're right here. And we want to be able to capitalize. But we can't. We can't do that. We can't push forward the kingdom of Jesus if we just sit and drink milk. And again, if, if you're here today and you're just exploring faith in Jesus and, you, and your friend brought you, probably leaning over like, he's not this crazy normal time, I swear. Like our goal for you right now, hear me what I say, is like we just want you to meet Jesus. Like that's my goal for you. But if you call First Christian Church home, like we don't want to stop this train. We don't want to stop the amazing work that the Spirit is doing. We want to keep it going. Dallas Willard, a theologian, uh, wrote this. He said, there's a notable heresy that's come into being throughout the evangelical Christian circles. He said, the widely accepted concept that we humans can choose to accept Christ only because we need him as Savior and that we have the right to postpone our obedience to him for as long as we want. The Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth 2,000 years ago is saying the exact same thing. That once your foundation of faith is set, you must build upon it. He continues in verse 8 of chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 through verse 15. So he goes on. He says, so the one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose. They will each be rewarded according to their own labor. Remember that part. Verse 9, for we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field. You are God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each of you should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stone, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a ward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, because uh, loss, but yet will be saved, even though as one escaping through the flames. How do you avoid a milk-only diet? Paul says you become a servant. 
You take a long look at your foundation of your life. And he, he throws in that phrase there, everyone will be rewarded according to their labor. Some of us, we say, oh, hold up. You teach us that this whole Christian, this Jesus thing is, is by grace through faith. We can't earn anything, and that's, that's the truth. The way in which we receive that foundation in Jesus is through what he has done and he has done alone. But Paul then says, but because of grace, there's actually a greater calling on anyone's life. Like some of us say, well, I don't like Christianity because it's about rules. I want to follow Jesus. And we say, cool, grace calls even more of you, expects even more of you. Like, no, nah, I don't really know if I like that. It's like, well, look what Jesus said in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through 8. He says, you have heard it said, don't kill dudes. And we're like, yeah, that's a good rule. Let's not do that. But I tell you, he who remains angry against a person has already committed murder. You have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But in my kingdom, in the kingdom of grace, I tell you, don't even lust after somebody who is not your spouse. You see, grace calls us to an even deeper, stronger way of living because out of love, we say, I'm going to do what's best for you, no matter what. But we forget that when we get to heaven someday, if you get to heaven someday, God's not just going to ask you a question along the lines of, did you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and your Lord and Savior? He might start with that question. He might ask you that question, but then he's going to follow it up. And he's going to say, so, so what did you do with that? What did you build with that in life? Did you just take it and live and go on your own? Or what did you do with that belief? Like, like for real, like what did you build on the foundations of grace in your life? There will come a day in which you will have to give account. I will have to give account and be valued for everything that I have done. What did I do with my life? What did you do with your money? How did you raise your family, your kids? How did you pursue relationships in your singleness? How do you treat others who disagree with you? What did you do with your, your, your neighbors? Did you set an example of faith and love and grace and mission and meaning and purpose? Or did you just go through life saying, well, at least I believe the one thing? Paul's saying, church in Corinth, I love you, but there's too much at stake for the kingdom of God to move forward. We can't just be on milk. We have to grow. We are called to build upon our firm foundation. And put it this way is that you cannot outbuild your foundation. How many of you HGTV comes on in your house like almost every single day? It's okay. Show of hands. It's right. It's like on 24-7 in my house. My wife's super into gardening right now, so that's fun. Moving on. There's this one show that I loved on HGTV, DIY Network, one of the ones. It's called Rehab Addict. There's this woman who, uh, she's in like Detroit, and she buys houses for a dollar because like they just want to kind of like rebuild up these neighborhoods in the city and stuff. You're like, you can get a house for a dollar? That's crazy. You can't even buy a bag of apples for a dollar. You get a whole house. But then you show these houses. These houses have been like burned. Or, or there's just, and the very first thing she does every episode, every single episode, is she says, we got to fix the foundation. We're going to jack the house up, build the foundation. We're going to tear it down. Uh, then we're going to build it back up, whatever it is. And it's like the first thing she does every single episode is we got to restore the foundation. 
When, when, when my wife and I, when we had our first house, we were living in Danville at, at the time. This house was like not even a thousand square feet. And uh, we kind of fixed some of the stuff up and we were getting ready to move here like seven years ago. And, um, and uh, we, we sold it by ourselves. Like we did for sale by owner. It's like no real estate agent's going to come for like a $2 commission check. So we're just going to do this on our own anyways. And, and it was interesting, I noticed very early on, who were the people who were interested because of what it looked like versus the, like, the real homeowners? And so people would come in, I love what you did with the shiplap. The shiplap is just great. All oh, this tile is fantastic. I love the color choices and the flow. And it was, oh man, and you stained the fence. That's unbelievable. There's this one couple, young couple. We're like, this is it. She's like, literally, she's telling, we're about to get married. This is our house. We're going to start here. Can't you see us having one kid because there's only like two bedrooms and they're next to each other and they're both like this big. So we have one kid before we get the new house. And then she's like, but before we do, my dad's on his way. And dad shows up. And he don't care what the tile looks like. Dad don't care, you know, uh, how new is the countertops, whatever. Dad's like going down in the basement doing one of these. He brought a golf ball and put it on the middle of our laundry or our, our, our dining room and just watched it roll around. And he's doing, hmm, hmm. He was just a big hmmer, hmm. Didn't say a word, hmm, hmm, hmm. Goes outside. He's not looking at the roof. He's looking at the soffits, like, hmm, hmm. Yeah, hmm, hmm. Walks back in. He simply says, don't buy this house. She's like, why? But it's beautiful. We love it. Da, da, da. He says, the foundation. Soon enough, you're going to have to do some real work to fix the foundation and everything else with it. They didn't buy the house. But your foundation is the most stable thing that you can turn to in your life. Like you want to know the, the true quality of, of someone's faith. It's not when life is going well. It's like, where, what does your faith look like when life begins to go not according to plan? That's when your foundation of life will truly be tested. And my heart for you, our church's heart for you, is to build upon the foundation of Jesus and a foundation that lasts. So three questions as, we, as I close up my time with you. The timer's not working today, so joke's on them. I can go as long as I want, but here we go. Three foundational questions. You like that little plan? Where, okay, number one. Just simply, where is your foundation? Take a hard look at your life. Where is your foundation? Jesus told this parable. There's two people who built houses. One built a house on sand. The other built a house on rock. And when the storm came away, that's a way of saying when life came and did its thing, one house stood strong, the other did not. Because one was built on sand, the other was built on rock. A simple question, is your foundation of everything that you preserve, everything you build your life on, is it Jesus or is it other? Is your foundation built on your bank account? Is your foundation built on, on your kids? Is your foundation built on how many toys you have? Is your foundation built on your intellectual ascent? I don't know what is, is your foundation, Jesus? And again, how do you determine your foundation? I'll give you a little litmus test. Is think through life and everything that you would give up in order. And the last thing standing is your foundation. Like there's a lot of things. Yeah, you can take my car, but don't take my kid. You can take my house. I'll go live in a tent with my family. And you go on and on down the line. You can take my job and I'll figure it out. But you go on and on down the line. And then probably near the bottom, there's going to be questions of like, okay, what if, what if we took away your family or your faith? And that's like a sobering question. What is your foundation? What is the thing that would be left standing if 
everything else got taken away. That's the first. Second question. Who are you building for? There's a story with Jesus, this rich young ruler came along and said, Jesus, what do I got to do? Inherit eternal life. And, and he says, well, you know the Ten Commandments. Da, 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 da. He's like, yep, I know all those. And he says, cool, one more thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor. And he's like, yeah, I don't want to do that. And he says, he hung his head and he walked away. And we don't know what happened with him. We don't know if maybe he came back around later or whatnot. But the question for him was, he built a life for himself. And he wanted Jesus to be kind of like the cherry on top. You know, earlier this week on our Facebook, we shared, shared a story uh, of some of the kids in our, our kids' ministry. I think it was last weekend. Um, they, uh, they, they, they put together this lemonade stand. And this lemonade stand, uh, you know, they're selling. I don't know if there's like a community garage sale, whatever it is. But all of the money in this lemonade stand that these little kids uh, back there uh, raised for was going to, half of it was going to our church and half of it was going to their grandparents' church. They're like six, and they're doing like, isn't that amazing? And what that says to me is they have parents who are saying, who are you building this life for? Who, are, are you using everything that you have for your glory? Or, and they're like, we can't do anything but make some really, really bad lemonade. And we're going to pour a ton of sugar in it because we're kids and we love sugar. And we're going to give all of that. We, we, didn't, we weren't saving for toys. We weren't saving for some, some nachos at the next game. His dad's going to buy them for us anyways. Because we're not building this life. Their, their parents are doing such an amazing job teaching them this life isn't to be built around us. So last question. Then we'll get out of here. What is your next building block in faith? Our Urbana campus pastor, Josh Hibbert, he said something in the meeting this week. Uh, you'll get to hear from him next week here. He said that God isn't concerned with how much you build, but how you build. And he said that, and I said, You're gonna, are you going to use that on Sunday? Because if not, I'm going to use it. And then internally, I was like, I don't know, that's a good line. Do I even give him credit? But, you know, he was the one who said it. God isn't concerned of how much you build, but how you build. And for many of us, I think for me even, as a pastor, that becomes the hardest question. Isn't how much I'm building, but how I am building. Paul says, some of you will build with gold, silver, stone, hay, straw. It doesn't matter. Nobody builds with the same stuff, but we all build on the foundation of Jesus. So look at me when I say this. Is What do you need to build with? Like some of you, you have been given amazing jobs and careers to make a lot of money. And what Jesus is saying, you have an opportunity to do something great for the kingdom of God that a lot of people don't. Some of you, you've been given hearts, these compassionate hearts where nobody wants to step into certain relationships or situations and you're like, man, this, this just fires me up and everybody runs away, but you run in. It's an opportunity for you to build into the kingdom of God with the gifts and the heart that he's given you. Others of you, you've got amazing families who, who, who you have in, in probably even today. You're walking in and being like, I don't know if they're amazing, but they're with me and I gotta take them anyways. But you have the opportunity to raise those kids and those children to, to understand that there's more to life than GPAs, that there's more to life than extracurriculars. Some of you are like, I don't have kids, I don't have a spouse, I'm just single. I'm going to say to you, some of you, you have the opportunity that others do not with time to be able to pour into other things beyond just yourself. What is your next building block of faith? Like, what would it look like just like a month from now if every single person in our church just took one tiny step towards that building block in faith? 
Like, what would that look like? What kind of resources and opportunity and ministries could we begin to do if we all said, I'm done with milk, I'm ready to grow up in my faith in Jesus? As we continue to worship this morning, we're going to move to a time of communion. And, and we want this time to be a reminder for us all. So if you haven't had the chance to grab the communion elements, you can do so right now. Uh, the four ways in which you come into the auditorium here, there are tables. Uh, if you have that, you can get out with us. If you are with us and you are not a follower of Jesus, what communion is is our chance to remember and to reflect on our foundation, on who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. A timer is going to come on the screen for a few minutes, and, and during this time, what we want you to do, I'm going to ask for you to do, is reflect on that foundation. As a follower of Jesus, if that's who you are, be grateful for everything that Jesus has done. And that He doesn't want to just be your foundation, He wants to be your guidepost of how to navigate this life. If you're with us this morning and you're exploring faith, Maybe you're not going to think of it as Jesus as the foundation of your life. But could he be? Should he be? What else might be the foundation if it's not him? And how does that compare? How does that last to something that's eternal in his love and his grace? As one of your pastors, we love you. We're so glad that you're here. We're so glad that, that you choose to spend part of your week with us. God is up to some amazing things here at First Christian in order for us to push the kingdom forward we have to constantly be asking alright God what's my next building block in faith we'll leave you in this time to worship, to reflect to remember his body broken for you, his blood shed for you as the savior of our lives and the savior of this world